What happened next and is that President Park decided to put what became known as Koreagate in motion. And the person who was most uh, deeply involved in this, uh, in addition to Ambassador Kim, was Tongson Park. Tongson Park was a Korean-American who spoke fluent English and was just given a pile of money uh, to set himself up in Georgetown and hold parties uh, for politicians and especially Democratic congressmen. He wined and dined them, he gave them envelopes full of money. I think almost all of that money came directly from the South Korean government and uh, as I recall it, it was in the neighborhood of nine or ten million dollars that were given. I think every Democrat in Congress was a potential target. It involved a hundred to hundred and fifty congressmen. Koreagate was an attempt to buy influence about halting any more troop withdrawals from Korea. Koreagate also involved money given to universities. Uh, they gave money to Harvard. They gave money to Columbia University, UC Berkeley, uh, to the University of Hawaii. The money was explicitly focused on quieting people who were criticizing the South Korean human rights situation. Congressman Donald Fraser spearheaded the investigation and Jimmy Carter comes in January 1977 and a few months later I happened to be on a plane going from Seattle to Washington with a Justice Department official and this official told me they're shutting their Koreagate investigation down because it's getting too close to powerful Democrats. Like many scandals in Washington, uh, this grabbed the headlines for a couple of years the reputations of various people, but ultimately not much happened. Uh, people didn't spend a long time in jail and the scandal disappeared. The Koreans did a lot to make it disappear in that President Park was killed over dinner on a Friday night, October 26, 1979, by the head of the KCIA, and that was the end of the Park regime. Uh, furthermore, President Jimmy Carter, who had campaigned on a platform of removing all of our troops from Korea, uh, he, under great pressure from the Defense Department, the Pentagon, and his own national security advisors, uh, decided to drop that plan in 1979. So here we are in 2012, and we still have 28,000 American troops in Korea. Ultimately, you could say uh, President Park and his uh, allies won. Now largely forgotten, the Koreagate scandal of the 1970s was once the source of sensational headlines. Shadowy intelligence operatives, slush funds, kickbacks, intricate schemes to secure political loyalty, and even rumors of sex and blackmail, all centered around one man, Tong Sun Park. Park studied at Georgetown University where he forged close connections with particular groups of young conservative activists. During his time there, he was also recruited by the KCIA, Korea's Central Intelligence Agency. After graduating, Park became a successful businessman in the DC area, as well as a social butterfly, cultivating relationships with congressmen, senators, and staffers on both sides of the political aisle. Koreagate reportedly began when South Korea's Prime Minister, Chung Il-kwan, tasked KCIA head Kim Hyong-uk to create an operation to sway political opinion in the United States. This plan involved Tong Sun Park, 
who at the time was facilitating rice sale contracts from the U.S. to South Korea through the government's Food for Peace program, collaborating with Congressman Richard T. Hanna from California, one of the largest rice-producing states in the U.S., Park used the commissions from these cells to wield influence. To execute this web of kickbacks and bribes, Park relied on his extensive network of contacts, spanning powerful Washington businesses and institutions, as well as the private clubs and backrooms of the Capitol. On the fringes of Koreagate, at least in terms of the official investigation, was Tong Sun Park's close associate, the influential lobbyist and public relations executive, Robert Keith Gray. Throughout his remarkable career, Gray mastered the art of influence peddling, associating with a wide range of individuals from Korean CIA operatives, such as Tong Sun Park, to U.S. CIA agents like Edwin P. Wilson and future agency director William Casey. His close associates and clients also included Adnan Khashoggi, Robert Maxwell, the Teamsters, and the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI. Gray's connections made him a crucial link in a shadowy network that was becoming increasingly intertwined with the corridors of power. Gray's name frequently surfaces in connection with multiple scandals, the most prominent being Koreagate, Watergate, the largely forgotten Pageboy scandal of 1982, and the Iran-Contra affair. Born in Hastings, a mid-sized industrial town in the Nebraskan countryside, Gray displayed an early interest in politics and enthusiastically participated in his high school debate club. Following his graduation in 1939, he and several debate club members attended Carleton College in Minnesota, where Gray pursued political science. As World War II loomed, the U.S. Navy introduced the V-7 program, a fast-track training course for naval officers in 1940. The V-7 program collaborated closely with universities across the nation, and Gray promptly enlisted in the program. The following years were transformative for Gray. He attended the Navy Supply Corps Midshipman Officers School in Newport, Rhode Island, while also taking business management courses at Harvard University. This unique blend of politics, business, and military connections came to define his lengthy and remarkable career. However, it would take time for him to make a name for himself. After the war, Gray returned to Hastings and worked at the local naval depot. He invested his free time in building social capital, teaching business courses at Hastings College, and joining various city organizations and social clubs, including the local Masonic Lodge. During this time in Hastings, Gray met Fred Seaton, owner of the Hastings Tribune and a prominent figure in Nebraskan politics. Hastings had no television station at the time, and Gray, recognizing the enormous potential of this space, applied to the Federal Communications Commission for a television license for Hastings. Unfortunately for Gray, Fred Seaton was his competitor. Seaton was a former senator and was at the time working for the Eisenhower White House. He had substantially greater resources and influence. Gray experienced the power of politics firsthand. He lost the license, but he learned that close connections, 
to powerful politicians was as important to success in business as good ideas and hard work. It was perhaps this interaction that planted the seed in Gray's mind that Washington, D.C. may be a more fertile ground for his ambitions. A year later, Gray petitioned Seton to help him gain a job in the political bureaucracy, to which Seton agreed. In late 1955, Gray moved to the Capitol, bringing Seton's contact information with him. Seton's contacts then helped Gray secure a position within the post-war bureaucracy, and he began working in the Pentagon as a special assistant to Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Personnel and Reserve Forces, Albert Pratt. In May 1956, Gray received a promotion, further elevating his position within the Eisenhower administration. He became a special assistant to the White House, serving as deputy to Fred Seaton. However, as Susan Trento notes in her book, The Powerhouse, Gray's role may have been more complex than it appeared. Classified as an accepted appointment, he was technically detailed to the White House from the Navy rather than receiving a standard promotion. If Gray was still technically under the supervision of the Navy, it is likely that Gray's new position involved intelligence and security matters. His primary responsibility was to review vast amounts of data related to Washington job seekers. As Trento explains, Gray was controlling the information about those seeking patronage or political positions at the federal level. Much of this data was marked highly confidential, giving Gray a unique insight into government power dynamics. Fred Seaton was appointed Secretary of the Interior in June 1956, and Gray soon worked under Sherman Adams, Eisenhower's chief of staff who was an early Rockefeller Republican and master bureaucrat. Adams was the political brain and right-hand man to President Eisenhower and was known for controlling access to the president. He was part of an inner circle of Eisenhower cronies that included powerful, politically connected businessmen such as Floyd Odlum and George Allen. These men's interests were closely aligned with the burgeoning military-industrial complex and the increasingly bold convergence of intelligence and business interests. Under Adams' guidance, this was the world Gray began to ease his way into. Following Adams' departure due to scandal, Gray found a new mentor in future President Richard Nixon. This connection introduced Gray to an extensive network that would influence the rest of his life. In 1960, he joined the ill-fated Nixon presidential campaign, where he potentially met his future friend William Casey for the first time. Gray also connected with Clark Clifford, a Democratic Party insider, archetypal cold warrior, and one of D.C.'s elite attorneys who had a vast network of contacts. Decades later, Clifford would be among the numerous U.S. political and business figures implicated in the BCCI scandal. Starting in the early 1980s, Clifford served as chairman of the board of First American Bank Shares, a major D.C.-based bank secretly controlled by BCCI through their acquisition of the bank's parent company. Shortly after Clifford took control of First American, Gray joined the bank's board of directors. After John F. Kennedy defeated Nixon in 1960 
Gray left government service to join Hill and Knowlton, a prominent public relations and lobbying firm founded in the 1920s by John Hill and Donald Knowlton. Though Hill and Knowlton would eventually become synonymous with the intricate conflicts and high-profile affairs of the D.C. Beltway, representing clients ranging from presidential hopefuls to BCCI, its early days were centered in Cleveland, with a primary focus on the local steel industry and its financiers. In the post-World War II era, H&K emerged as a leading promoter of the aviation industries, which were thriving due to the convergence of American heavy industry and the U.S. military. John Hill, for instance, was a member of the Air Power League, a pressure group established by a group of businessmen and military officials aiming to educate the public on aviation and garner support for expanding airport facilities and air training programs. The League maintained a close relationship with the Aviation Industries Association, a major aviation trade association that H&K had taken on as a client. Such connections firmly ensconced H&K in the military-industrial complex. As the Encyclopedia of Public Relations makes clear, the Aviation Industries Association sought a steady diet of military appropriations for its member companies, and it promoted air safety, travel, and other aspects of civil aviation. After the war ended, military contracts took a nosedive, so the agency focused on convincing the federal government to audit the nation's air policies and its readiness for another war. When both Congress and President Harry S. Truman set up commissions to review air policy, Hill and Knowlton helped industry officials prepare their testimony and publicize the board's findings. Joining with the American Legion, the Aviation Industries Association sponsored a campaign, Air Power is Peace Power, beginning in 1947. H&K also appeared to have connections with the CIA. Robert Crowley, a longtime operator within the agency's Directorate of Operations, claimed that the firm's overseas offices were perfect cover for the ever-expanding CIA. Crowley was well-positioned to know as he acted as the agency's liaison to the business world, using existing businesses as covers for agents abroad and creating proprietary firms to act as agency fronts. Crowley may have even played a role in bringing a young George H.W. Bush into the CIA's fold. Bush's Zapata Petroleum is suspected to have served as an agency front for various Caribbean operations involving his friend and business partner, Thomas Devine, during Crowley's time as an agency liaison. Robert Gray was himself likely directly involved in these efforts. When Edwin Wilson inquired with the CIA's Office of Security before adding Gray to the board of a CIA front called Consultants International, he found that Gray had already been cleared by the spy agency that Gray had previous clearances. In the 1960s, Gray became associated with a powerful group of interests known as the China Lobby. This early Cold War lobby represented the nationalist Chinese, the Kuomintang, KMT, and their supporters in Washington. 
The China lobby advocated for U.S. support for Chiang Kai-shek's government in Taiwan against Mao Zedong's Chinese communists. In its most extreme form, this support involved militarized intervention in mainland China and elsewhere in Southeast Asia. As scholars such as Peter Dell Scott have demonstrated, many of these activities initiated a complex chain of events that eventually led to the Vietnam War. One of the most influential figures in the China lobby was Anna Chenault, who forged connections with numerous politicians, businessmen, military figures, and intelligence officers. She held positions on the boards of various companies, acted as an advisor to several U.S. presidents, and also served as a diplomatic channel to leaders in Taiwan, South Korea, the Philippines, Japan, and beyond. Robert Gray maintained a close relationship with Anna Chenault, though the exact details of how their relationship formed remain unknown. Anna Chenault's husband was Claire Chenault, the leader of the first American volunteer group, better known as the Flying Tigers during World War II. Comprised of members from the U.S. military, the Flying Tigers trained at bases in Burma before flying to China to fight Japanese forces alongside the KMT. From the late 1930s, Claire Chenault served as a military advisor to Chiang Kai-shek and his brother-in-law, the influential T.B. Soong. As mentioned in Chapter 1, Claire Chenault had extensive connections, including ties to the Roosevelt administration. After the war, the Chenaults became core members of the China lobby and, in those early years, coordinated an impressive airlift of American relief supplies in China. A crucial part of this effort was the creation of a new airline called Civil Air Transport, CAT. As previously noted, CAT would transform into the CIA proprietary airline Air America, which would subsequently become the infamous Southern Air Transport. Other airlines involved in this network included Air Freighter Flying Tiger Lines, which was established by a group of Claire Chenault's former pilots. Anna Chenault would join the company as its Vice President of International Affairs. Evidence suggests that Flying Tiger Lines was utilized by the CIA and its board of directors included individuals linked to organized crime. Concurrently, Anna acted as a consultant to numerous large aviation concerns, including Pan American, whose interests directly intertwined with those of the CIA's Civil Air Transport Air America complex. Over the years, Flying Tiger Lines evolved into World Airways, and Robert Gray would sit on the organization's board of directors. Gray's early political mentor, the future president, Richard Nixon, was also an ally of the China lobby. While many journalists and academics have identified Nixon as a member of the lobby, a 1992 academic paper suggests his involvement was more pragmatic than ideological. He maintained good relations with Chiang Kai-shek and T.B. Soong, which led to business arrangements during the 1960s when Nixon temporarily left politics for private law. One of his largest clients was Pepsi, the Taiwanese interests of which were firmly held by members of the Soong family. All of this serves as the backdrop for the formation of the Georgetown Club in March 1966. The main organizers included Robert Gray, Tong Sun Park, Claire and Anna Chenault, as well as Henry Preston Pitts, 
Lawrence Murthen, and General Graves B. Erskine. The club was officially established for the purpose of bringing together leaders who had an impact on the United States and the world through their work in various business, professional, civic, social, and political endeavors. Henry Pitts and Lawrence Murthen, according to the Washington Post, worked alongside Gray at H&K at the time of the club's founding. By the time the Koreagate hearings began in the late 1970s, Pitts had left H&K and gone to work for the U.S. Information Agency, the once covert body set up during the Eisenhower administration to direct public diplomacy and Cold War propaganda. General Graves B. Erskine had a distinguished career in the realm of intelligence and covert operations. In 1950, he operated the military wing of the survey mission to Southeast Asia, which connected him with anti-communist interests aligned with the domestic China lobby. Working closely with representatives of nationalist China, Erskine developed a military strategy to support KMT fighters in Burma and their allies in Thailand which ultimately led to the inception of Operation Paper. This operation marshaled CIA operatives, such as the mob-linked banker and OSS veteran Paul Heliwell. Arms flowed to Thailand and Burma aboard ships chartered by Sea Supply, a front company organized by Paul Heliwell. Peter Del Scott argues that Operation Paper was a key point in the development of U.S. intelligence complicity in the global drug trade. At the very least, it marks a major instance of intelligence's indirect support for drug traffickers. In 1953, Erskine became the director of special operations at the Department of Defense, putting him in charge of an obscure office within the Pentagon that served as liaison between the armed forces and the CIA. Here, he oversaw an increasing number of covert operations and special wars around the world. Per the State Department, the functions of the Office of Special Operations also encompass all psychological operations activities in which the Department of Defense participates, including monitorship of psychological warfare, planning, operations, and research and development, as well as unconventional warfare, international information activities, and other operations of a similar nature. Notably, operating under Erskine was the infamous Edward Lansdale, America's architect of guerrilla warfare and psychological operations in the post-war era. When Erskine suffered a heart attack in 1957, Lansdale stepped in and ran the special operations office in his absence. The Georgetown Club's membership was a fascinating intersection of China lobby interest and skilled operators in the world of covert intelligence. The club's manager, Norman Larson, had previously worked in the Washington offices of the Lifeline Foundation, a charitable body owned by Texas oil man and financier of right-wing causes, H.L. Hunt. Other recipients of Hunt's patronage included Foreign Intelligence Digest, a private intelligence magazine organized and edited by Douglas MacArthur's former intelligence chief, Charles Willoughby. While Willoughby operated far from the environs of the Georgetown Club, numerous authors have highlighted his linkages to the wider China lobby network. David Clayton writes that the lobby was intrinsically tied to advocates of a foreign policy of rollback and to Douglas MacArthur through his intelligence chief, 
General Charles Willoughby. Harvey Clare writes that Willoughby was a China lobby ally, and Peter Del Scott writes that others who used McCarthy to settle old scores included the Chinese nationalist of the China lobby, their spokesman, Alfred Kohlberg, and General MacArthur's Prussian-born intelligence chief in Japan, General Charles Willoughby. The International Youth Federation for Freedom, founded by Tong Sun Park and Douglas Caddy, was another organization within this network. As a nonprofit anti-communist group, it seemingly had some working relationship with the CIA. Norman Larson's membership in this organization further highlights the expansive nature of the China lobby network. In his Koreagate testimony, Tong Sun Park passingly refers to Douglas Caddy, who later appeared in the Watergate scandal as E. Howard Hunt's attorney. Caddy was the executive director of the Young Americans for Freedom, an organization founded by former CIA officer William F. Buckley, a close friend of Roy Cohn and founder of the National Review. Charles Willoughby also sat on the advisory board of Young Americans for Freedom. Park's testimony also mentioned Senator John Tower, who was a member of the Georgetown Club and had close ties to Robert Maxwell and Tong Sun Park. During testimony, Park stated, I was a friend of the Tower family, and Tower was involved in supporting Young Americans for Freedom, which was founded by one of my closest friends. Presumably, the close friend mentioned is Douglas Caddy. Whitney Webb reports of a State Department telegram concerning the Georgetown Club. However, I was unable to locate said telegram in my search. According to Webb, the telegram reported that despite operating in the red for its first six years, the club managed to stay afloat, presumably through the help of its owners and donors. The governing board of the club was divided equally between the Democratic and Republican parties. According to the telegram, Clark W. Thompson, a moderate Texas Democrat with a long history of representing the state, served as the chairman of the club's board at the time. Thompson was known for working on both sides of the political tribes and had a mixed stance on many issues. For instance, he supported school desegregation but opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and 1960. Closer examination reveals Thompson had connections to the realms of organized crime and intelligence. He was married to the daughter of William Lewis Moody Jr., a key figure in Texas finance and insurance. Moody's flagship firm was American National Insurance Company, founded in Galveston, Texas in 1905. The Moody's were briefly mentioned in the previous chapter, as Moody's grandson, Shern Moody Jr., was a close friend and client of Roy Cohn. According to a shared friend of Cohn and Moody, the eccentric Shern Moody Jr. supplied Cohn and other specific guests with many little boys of the night when they visited his Texas ranch. Clark Thompson had served American National Insurance Company as a board director and treasurer during the 1920s, but left when he entered politics. According to Webb, during his time as chairman of the Georgetown Club, 
he rekindled ties with the conglomerate and was listed as its official lobbyist. Morris Shanker, who was best known for serving as Jimmy Hoffa's attorney, also served as American National Insurance Company's attorney. Shanker helped bring the insurance firm into the mob-dominated world of Las Vegas hotels and casinos. According to Sally Denton and Roger Morris, American National Insurance funneled untold millions into Las Vegas gambling interests, including funds to Schenker himself and, most significantly, to Parvin Dorman, the company that owned the Stardust, Aladdin, and Fremont casinos. E. Perry Thomas, the man credited with establishing the Las Vegas Strip, was closely aligned with Mariner and George Eccles, the offspring of a prominent Mormon banking and construction family. Mariner Eccles served as President Roosevelt's Federal Reserve Chief, and George Eccles maintained a spot on the board of American National Insurance and nurtured ties to various ventures that were, at the very least, adjacent to organized crime. George Eccles was also affiliated with American Bankers Life Assurance Company, located in Miami, Florida, where agency operative and OSS veteran Paul Helliwell served as general counsel. The offices of American Bankers Life Assurance Company were also used by Helliwell as headquarters for the agency's sea supply operation. Additionally, American Bankers Life Assurance Company connected to Miami National Bank, which was identified in 1969 as having served as a conduit for Meyer Lansky's couriers to launder hot syndicate money through the Interlocking Exchange and Investment Bank in Geneva between 1963 and 1967. The Georgetown Club was situated within a broader network of entities and institutions closely connected to Washington backroom politics, organized crime, and the CIA. Tongsun Park, one of the main figures behind the club was a known asset of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, which is perhaps the reason the club initially drew the CIA's attention. While the Korean CIA and US CIA collaborated, Korean intelligence also engaged in activities, such as those that bloomed into Koreagate, that compromised US political figures and potentially disrupted US geopolitical interests. To address these concerns, the U.S. CIA assigned an agent, Edwin P. Wilson, to monitor the club's activities. Edwin Wilson would later be known as a rogue agent after he was linked to various terrorist and assassination plots. A significant part of Wilson's early career with the CIA involved working undercover as a staffer for the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations, AFL-CIO, a prominent union organization that supported business unionism. The CIA and AFL-CIO had a history of close collaboration with the union providing cover for agents and operations, while the CIA often subsidized the AFL-CIO's international activities. Wilson worked in the office of Paul Hall, the head of the AFL-CIO's Maritime Trades Department, which dealt with unions involved in shipping-related trades and industries. This marked the beginning of Wilson's extensive involvement in maritime activities. 
After leaving the AFL-CIO, Edwin Wilson's work for the CIA involved managing proprietary firms, many of which operated in the realm of shipping, freight forwarding, and logistics. One of the first of these was Maritime Consultants, set up in Washington, D.C. with CIA funds. According to Joseph Trento, Wilson quickly began chartering barges to Vietnam, arranging cover in commercial businesses for CIA agents and setting up businesses worldwide. Using his maritime cover, Wilson conducted detailed surveys of nearly every port in Africa and the Pacific. It is possible that Wilson's involvement with the Georgetown Club was less about monitoring the activities of Robert Gray, Tong Sun Park, and the Chenaults, and more about managing the complexities of these covert maritime operations. Given Robert Gray's own past with the Navy, this could be a plausible connection. Furthermore, Wilson's business in Vietnam would have significantly benefited from Anna Chenault, who had close connections to the Vietnamese government and other prominent figures in Southeast Asia. In any case, Wilson's arrival at the Georgetown Club marked the beginning of a long association between himself and Robert Gray. Wilson and Gray made trips to Taiwan, where each had business interests that were, in all likelihood, interrelated. Wilson gained lucrative contracts from the nationalist Chinese military, while Gray signed on the Taiwanese government as a client. The account was entrusted to George Murphy, an actor and California state senator, who was at the time serving as an employee at Hill & Knowlton. Gray routed the work through a separate company established specifically for these purposes, named GM, presumably standing for Gray Murphy. Susan Trento writes, According to Wilson, Gray set up GM to handle the Taiwanese account. Since Anna Chenault trusted Murphy, Gray put the senator in charge of GM. George Murphy, unsurprisingly, was also a member of the Georgetown Club. In addition to their trips to Taiwan and shared business interests, Wilson and Gray were involved in activities that dovetailed with those of the CIA. Gray was a board member of Consultants International, a firm that Wilson managed from offices near H&K on K Street in Washington, D.C. Consultants International was not just a consulting firm, it was also a CIA proprietary firm set up as a successor to Wilson's earlier front company, Maritime Consulting. Robert Gray later disavowed knowing Wilson and claimed that he had been added to the board of Consultants International without his knowledge. However, many people in their network, including H&K employees and Wilson himself, have contested Gray's account. There are indications that Gray, Wilson, Park, and the complex network of China lobby activists and intelligence operatives associated with the Georgetown Club were involved in more than just social networking and lobbying. Eavesdropping and blackmail seem to have been part of the club's covert mandate. Richard Allen, a future Reagan National Security Advisor who would have known Gray through their involvement in the Heritage Foundation, suggested in an interview with Susan Trento that the club was bugged. Jim Hogan, in his book, Secret Agenda, mentions even darker possibilities. 
He writes that he received a letter from Frank Turbull, Edwin Wilson's longtime partner, claiming that Wilson used the club to collect dirt on prominent Washington politicians and businessmen by arranging trysts for the politically powerful. Quoting from this letter, Historically, one of Wilson's agency jobs was to subvert members of both houses of Congress by any means necessary. Certain people could be easily coerced by living out their sexual fantasies in the flesh. A remembrance of these occasions was permanently recorded via selected cameras, I'm sure for historical purposes only. The unwitting porno stars advanced in their political careers, some of whom may still be in office. You may now realize the total ineffectiveness of the watchdog committees assigned to oversee clandestine operations. In considering these allegations, it is important to highlight that Frank Turple is their sole source and federal prosecutors doubted his veracity. Additionally, the allegations made by former Nebraska State Senator John DeCamp in his work on the Franklin scandal suggest that Robert Gray had close ties with Harold Anderson, the publisher of the Omaha World Herald, who is alleged to have participated in the nationwide pedophilia ring that the Franklin scandal focused on. DeCamp notes that Anderson was closely tied to Larry King, who was at the center of the scandal and who was aided by George H.W. Bush in rehabilitating his image following the scandal. DeCamp, who attempted to expose government efforts to sweep the scandal under the rug, also asserts that Gray was reportedly a specialist in homosexual blackmail operations for the CIA and that his associate, Edwin Wilson, was intimately involved in sexual blackmail operations that were apparently a continuation of the work of a reported Gray collaborator from the 1950s, Roy Cohn. Cohn and Gray reportedly knew each other, but the exact nature of their relationship is difficult to determine. However, they were certainly acquainted. Both men were involved in Ronald Reagan's 1980 presidential campaign, where they worked closely with William Casey, the campaign's manager and later Reagan's CIA director. Interestingly, shortly after the campaign, Roy Cohn, Robert Gray, and Jeffrey Epstein would all take on arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi as a client at the beginning of the Iran-Contra affair. Edwin Wilson departed from the CIA in 1971 under incredibly murky circumstances with the most common narrative being that his cover was blown by a Soviet asset. Per the media narrative spun, Wilson is said to have cut ties with the agency and gone rogue, becoming a covert private operator for hire. Yet evidence released, not only during his trial, but well after its conclusion, shows that Wilson remained in close contact with a cadre of CIA officers and officials whose activities took on increasingly strange and frightening forms throughout the 1970s. This group was centered around Theodore Ted Shackley, also known as the CIA's Blonde Ghost. Shackley's background was different from the typical CIA leadership, which usually consisted of members from the posh worlds of high finance and white-collar law firms. Shackley came from Florida and began his career in the Army. 
serving in the Army Counterintelligence Corps before being recruited into the CIA. By 1953, Shackley was working under William Harvey at the West Berlin CIA station, the frontier of Cold War espionage, where he likely gained exposure to the more exotic aspects of CIA work. After returning to the United States, William Harvey managed a CIA assassination team, many of whose members were mob hitmen recruited into the agency under the ZR Rifle Program. ZR Rifle was designed to recruit individuals who could provide the CIA with highly targeted executive action, aka assassinations and black operations. Along with other CIA assassination activities, ZR Rifle was investigated by the Church Committee in the 1970s. This investigation was the first to document and publicize American efforts to eliminate Fidel Castro and other foreign leaders. ZR Rifle and William Harvey's assassination activities were woven into Operation Mongoose, the joint CIA-Army covert war against Fidel Castro's Cuba. The central hub of the CIA side of the anti-Castro operations was the Miami Station, codenamed J.M. Wave, or Operation 40. Tucked away in an unassuming building on the extended campus of the University of Miami, the station employed from 300 to 700 agents and 2,000 to 6,000 Cubans. In 1962, Ted Shackley became the station chief for J.M. Wave. According to Joseph Trento, it was during this period that Paul Heliwell mentored Shackley in the art of covert financial activities. Heliwell is said to have shown Shackley the importance of income from agency fronts and, according to numerous case officers who worked at J.M. Wave, helped him ensure that fronts, such as Zenith Technical Enterprises, provided perfect cover for J.M. Wave and its corresponding activities. These allegations are partially corroborated by other sources, such as the Washington Post, which reported in 1980 that Paul Heliwell was instrumental in helping to direct a network of CIA undercover operations and proprietaries. Interestingly, one of the few declassified CIA documents to mention Heliwell is a list of files removed from internal circulation in order to avoid turning them over to Watergate investigators. Almost all of the other files in the list deal directly with the CIA's support of anti-Castro Cuban exiles. J.M. Wave was the place where Shackley formed close relationships that would shape the rest of his long career, both inside and outside of the agency. Among Shackley's alliances formed through J.M. Wave was Thomas Kleins, who later emerged as a key player in the Iran-Contra conspiracy. Klein served as Shackley's deputy even after both men stepped beyond the confines of the agency itself. 
there were also a score of Cuban exiles amongst these newfound alliances, including Rafael Quintero and Ricardo Chavez, as well as the notorious Felix Rodriguez, who was best known for his involvement in the death of Marxist revolutionary Che Guevara and his role in Iran-Contra. Many of these individuals followed Shackley overseas in 1966 when he was made the CIA station head in Bientian, Laos. This station oversaw the agency's participation in the secret war being waged within Laos and Cambodia. It was a perfect spot for a team that was increasingly specializing in wet work and black operations. During this period, Bientian was the epicenter of major illicit trade in contraband, gold, and raw opium, most of which was destined for Saigon. Laos boasted several prominent opium merchants with deep ties to the country's political and military establishment. One of these merchants, Juan Radicun, had previously commanded the Laotian army, and his drug trafficking operations saw extensive collaboration with Nagoon Cao Ki, the high-ranking commander of the South Vietnamese Air Force. Ki and his men were moving raw opium from Laos on their planes while also working closely with the CIA in secret war efforts such as Operation Haylift, which saw saboteurs drop deep into the jungles of North Vietnam. This circuit was of immense interest to American organized crime figures. In 1965, Meyer Lansky's financial agent, John Pullman, flew to Hong Kong, reportedly to investigate the burgeoning wartime trade. Several years later, Florida mob boss Santo Traficante arrived in Hong Kong and soon made his way to Saigon. According to Alfred McCoy, Soon after Traficante's visit to Hong Kong, a Filipino courier ring started delivering Hong Kong heroin to mafia distributors in the United States. U.S. Bureau of Narcotics Intelligence reports in the early 1970s indicated that another courier ring was bringing Hong Kong heroin into the United States through the Caribbean, Traficante's territory. The presence of Santo Traficante in Southeast Asia raises questions about the potential connections between organized crime, the CIA, and their covert operations. Traficante had been an active supporter of the anti-Castro operations, and many Cuban exiles trained by the CIA as part of the JM Wave program went on to work in drug trafficking for Traficante when the agency program wound down. Although, it is uncertain if Shackley was directly involved with Traficante's arrival in Southeast Asia, the possibility exists due to their mutual interest and connections in the region. Although hardly reliable, there are stories revolving around Shackley personally introducing Traficante to Vong Pao, a Laotian heroin warlord, during a 1968 trip to Saigon. While the details of these stories cannot be confirmed, Vong Pao would have had to have known of Shackley as he commanded the Hmong troops that were being backed and trained by the CIA in Laos. According to Alfred McCoy, 
The CIA's logistical networks allowed Vong Pao to increase the efficacy of the Laos-South Vietnam opium trade. Air logistics for the opium trade were further improved in 1967 when the CIA and the United States Agency for International Development gave Vong Pao financial assistance in forming his own private airline, Jin Kuang Air Transport. The company's president, Lo Kam Tai, said the airline was formed in late 1967 when two C-47s were acquired from Air America and Continental Air Services. The company's schedule was limited to shuttle flights between Long Ting and Vientiane that carried relief supplies and an occasional handful of passengers. Financial control was shared by Vong Pao, his brother, his cousin, and his father-in-law. Reliable Hmong sources reported that Jin Kuang Air Transport was the airline used to carry opium and heroin between Long Ting and Vientiane. This was the crucial context for key figures in Ted Shackley's circle, such as Thomas Kleins, Richard Secord, and Major John K. Singlob, coming together and forming a group that would later be known as Ted Shackley's private CIA. Richard Secord, an Air Force pilot, had been assigned to the CIA's Laotian station and had personal connections to many individuals involved in the opium trade via airways, such as Air Marshal Key. Another influential figure in the group, Major John K. Singlob, would later be involved in Iran-Contra and, per his own account, had served alongside Paul Heliwell in the OSS during World War II. Edwin Wilson also played an active role in providing logistical support for the CIA's secret war in Southeast Asia, often working closely with James Cunningham, the head of the Southeast Asian Division of the CIA's Air America, who ultimately answered to Ted Shackley. Though not directly stationed in Southeast Asia, Wilson's frequent trips between Washington and Vientiane would have been of great interest to Tong Sun Park, Robert Gray, Anna Chenault, and other members of the China lobby who held status in Edwin Wilson's inner circle. In 1968, Shackley took over the Saigon CIA station, giving him operational oversight of a wide range of operations, including for a time, the infamous Phoenix Program. The Phoenix Program, while financed by the CIA, operated under the auspices of CORDS, Civil Operations and Revolutionary Development Support, which was overseen by the CIA's experienced Southeast Asian hand and bureaucratic mastermind, William Colby. Rumors circulated among military brass in the country that Shackley exerted influence over Colby through sexual blackmail. Shackley and Wilson alleged to have been carrying out similar blackmail activities at the Georgetown Club were quite similar in this regard. According to retired U.S. Army Colonel Tullius Akampora, who served in Vietnam, Shackley's colleagues soon realized that Shackley was keeping a book on the private lives of all of his superiors in Vietnam, including Colby and military officers such as General Creighton Abrams, who, according to Akampora, was involved with a Vietnamese woman. 
if pressed upon an undesirable topic by a colleague, Shackley would warn him off by mentioning any personal entanglements. As John Sherwood put it, he was good at letting you know he knew that he had something on you, that he had an edge. Shackley remained in Saigon until May 1972, when he took over as head of the CIA's Western Hemisphere Division, placing him in a key position during a turbulent period in Latin America. Although anti-Castro operations had largely diminished by this time, the CIA continued to provide operational support to Cuban exile groups, some of which had evolved into militant terrorist organizations, such as Coordination of United Revolutionary Organizations. However, the focus of the agency began to shift towards the southern cone countries, such as Chile, where socialist leader Salvador Allende had risen to power. In 1973, Shackley found himself on the bureaucratic front line when a coup brought Augusto Pinochet to power in Chile, leading to a series of brutal regimes and dirty wars that swept across South America. Even before Shackley left Saigon, his network of contacts were busy making arrangements. Thomas Kleins, who would soon be embroiled in the agency's ventures in Chile, had left Saigon in 1970 and rotated back stateside to spend time at the Naval War College. Joining him there was Richard Secord. Secord, in this period, completed his War College thesis. The prescient title of his thesis was Unconventional Warfare, Covert Operations as an Instrument of U.S. Foreign Policy. Throughout 1971, Kleins kept in touch with Edwin Wilson, who was now allegedly operating outside of the CIA's purview. It was at this point that Kleins brought Wilson into the realm of naval intelligence by way of a secretive unit known as Task Force 157. Task Force 157 was a clandestine human intelligence gathering unit established by the United States Navy in the 1960s. The groundwork for Task Force 157 was laid by a memo drafted by President Johnson's Secretary of the Navy, Paul Nitze, titled Instructions for the Coordination and Control of the Navy's Clandestine Intelligence Collection Program. The memo aimed to create a human intelligence gathering apparatus and originated from plans made by Admiral Rufus Taylor, who had served in the Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI, as well as the National Security Agency, NSA. In 1966, Taylor took a post as Deputy Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, and later became the Deputy Director of the CIA, serving under Richard Helms. The first iteration of the Navy's Human Intelligence Unit was the Naval Field Operations Support Group. Author Michael McClintock suggests that the original template for the unit was Task Force 98, a Navy program that supported Southeast Asian paramilitary activities carried out by Edward Lansdale and Lucian Conian. By July 1966, 
the support group was given the mandate to establish a worldwide intelligence collection organization while preserving non-intelligence attributability of collection operations. To help obscure the organization's activities, it was given the codename Task Force 157. The unit primarily focused on gathering intelligence information on communist bloc naval and shipping information. To achieve this, subunits were devised and located across the world, often in ports adjacent to shipping channels and choke points for maritime traffic. In similar fashion to the CIA, Task Force 157 set up front companies to charter ships and maintain offices, established listening posts, and worked closely with the military and the CIA in developing improved navigational maps for the support of military activities. Task Force 157 even maintained its own international communication system based on encryption technology inherited from the NSA, which was codenamed the Weather Channel. Although Task Force 157 had some operational autonomy, it ultimately answered to both the CIA and the Office of Naval Intelligence. However, the CIA seemed to have more influence over the task force, especially in organizing the networks of proprietary companies. When the task force reached out to the CIA for guidance on setting up proprietaries and front companies, the agency recommended Ed Wilson to the task force, stating, Ed Wilson is the man you need. Wilson soon joined the Task Force 157 payroll, earning an annual salary of $32,000. Despite his official salary, Wilson quickly became a multimillionaire as a result of Task Force 157 allowing Wilson to keep earnings from the commercial fronts he set up and operated as legitimate businesses. Two of the new front companies, World Marine Incorporated and Maryland Maritime Company, were both registered in Washington, D.C. and operated from the same offices as Consultants International, where Robert Keith Gray sat on the board of directors. Wilson also spent time at another company, Around World Shipping and Charting, based in Houston, Texas. While it's unclear whether Around World Shipping was tied to Task Force 157 or operated as a CIA-adjacent firm similar to Consultants International, Around World would later play a key role in the activities of Shackley's private CIA. As Wilson settled into his new role, Task Force 157 was becoming involved in one of the major foreign policy shifts of the Cold War era. Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger were pushing for an opening with China as part of a broader geopolitical push for detente, which aimed to relax tensions with the Soviet Union and China, as well as curb the nuclear arms race. This initiative was treated with the utmost secrecy. While then White House Chief of Staff Alexander Haig was involved in the effort, most of the CIA and Joint Chiefs of Staff were kept in the dark for Kissinger, the success of the China-focused efforts would require diplomatic channels and information transfers to remain airtight. Kissinger appealed 
to Admiral Thomas H. Moore, then serving as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for assistance in establishing secure communication channels for this sensitive initiative. Moore, who had been directly involved with Task Force 157 while serving as Chief of Naval Operations, arranged for Kissinger to use the Weather Channel to send encrypted messages and arrange the necessary diplomatic back channels for this impending geopolitical shift. However, unbeknownst to Kissinger, Moore opposed both Kissinger's bureaucratic wrangling and Nixon's overarching imperative of circumventing the usual bastions of political power. Moore also strongly opposed the China Initiative itself and was allied with elements of the pro-KMT China lobby. This complicated the situation and created potential conflicts of interest within the intelligence community as they navigated the complex landscape of Cold War geopolitics. Pulling from a Houston media source public access television interview of Douglas Caddy conducted by Ray Hill. Now, you were working for conservative organizations doing conservative things as you evolved into the situation in Watergate. Was that kind of an awakening for you? It became an awakening, yes. But actually, uh, I, got, I got involved in Watergate because uh, I was working for General Foods Corporation after I was graduating from New York University Law School. And they sent me from their headquarters in White Plains, New York, to Washington and said, for the first year, you're going to be our lobbyist. But for the first year, we want you to work out of the Robert Mullen Company, which was their public relations firm. And it was in the Kiplinger Building in Washington. And I was, this was 1969, and Howard Hunt came on board the staff. Uh, Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, placed Howard Hunt there in 1969. We started talking, and it turned out that Howard Hunt's, the godfather of Howard Hunt's children was William F. Buckley. And I'd written for National Review uh, when I was in, a Georgetown undergraduate. And we founded Young Americans for Freedom at his family home in Sharon, Connecticut. And, so Buckley was a very close friend of mine, so Howard, and, Howard Hunt and I hit it off, you might say. And well, Howard Hunt was kind of a spook operation in that public relations firm? Well, it turned out later on I did not know it because Jenna Foods never told me. Uh, but uh, Howard Baker, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but Howard Baker, in his uh, own report to the Senate Watergate Committee that came out in 1974, uh, uh, disclosed that uh, the Robert Mullen Company had been incorporated by the CIA in 1959. So here I was uh, not, I, I wasn't, I was just, a, I was an employee of General Foods Corporation. I was their lobbyist. And here I was actually, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, in, in the CIA front. And then this came out as part of, as part of uh, the Watergate scandal. But I, I want to add something here about uh, Woodward and Bernstein because, uh, by the way, that picture was taken when Woodward and Bernstein, Bernstein spoke at the Wortham uh, center here in Houston. Here in Houston at the Brilliant Lecture Series uh, you know, two years ago. And um, um, Woodward, uh, uh, Woodward actually, uh, I think, uh, he had more knowledge about uh, my showing up at that arraignment than, than you mentioned. Let me put it this way, that in 1969 and 1970, uh, Bob Woodward was the liaison from the Pentagon, from the Intelligence Committee from the Pentagon to the White House. He gave weekly briefings to General Alexander Haig, who was the chief of staff. 
And if you remember the big story in Vanity Fair about Deep Throat and Mark Felt, that's where Bob Woodward talks about meeting Mark Felt in the reception room while they're both waiting, waiting to uh, meet different people, you know. To debrief people in the White House. Yeah, but it was really a two-way street because General um, Alexander Haig was a very ambitious man. He wanted to be Secretary of State. So uh, not only did Woodward brief him, but General Alexander Haig sent information back that he wanted the Pentagon to know. You know. Oh, okay, that's two-way street. But I thought uh, before we get into, because this, this is gonna, we're gonna talk today about, uh, uh, was uh, Watergate really about sex? And it was to a great extent. But I thought before we did that, I would just give the, how, how Watergate evolved, okay? And I'd start with the election of Richard Nixon in 1968. The day he was inaugurated in 1969, he signed National Security Decision Number 2, in which he took away the roles of the, of the, uh, of the Pentagon, of the CIA and the State Department in foreign policy development. And he said, oh, from now on, it's going to be just me and just he and Henry Kissinger and the National Security Council. And, and you know how, so you can see how it was a sort of a diplomatic uh, declaration of war against those three uh, government agencies. And you can see how they felt being deprived of being active participants in the decision making. And this is one reason why Nixon was later, later uh, forced to resign because of the resentment that started the first day he took office where he made this decision. That same uh, year, in 1969, the Pentagon established a war room to monitor anti-war activities and the new left. And as part of that, they assigned Carl Schaffler, who was uh, an intelligence agent, uh, to the Washington, D.C. police. He's going to figure in what I'm going to disclose today quite prominently. He was an intelligence agent, uh, and he was assigned to the Washington, D.C. police. He brought with him $150,000 from the Pentagon to supplement the D.C. police budget uh, to monitor uh, anti-war activities and the new left. And, um, and so uh, also in, in, um, in, 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 in uh, 1970 was when uh, Schaffler enrolled as his confidential informant. He was a police detective, uh, Robert Merritt. And Robert Merritt, uh, uh, Robert Merritt, in many ways, is, is the cause of Watergate, as I'll explain, is the cause of Watergate, because he found out ahead of time of the plans of the burglars to burglarize the Watergate. He found that out from a drag queen. I'll get into that in a moment. <laughs> from a drag queen, who, oh, uh, and I'll explain the circumstances that, that took place. But um, also in 1970, which is when... Uh, Detective Schaffler enrolled Robert Merritt as a uh, as a confidential informant. Uh, there was uh, uh, there was a, a development inside the uh, White House whereby uh, the Pentagon, being unhappy with what Nixon had done, planted an agent in there to monitor what was going on in the White House. That agent was uh, was a yeoman named Charles Radford, and he worked with uh, Henry Kissinger, and he reported to the chief. Chief of uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he later disclosed when his role was was uncovered that he he photographed over a thousand documents in Henry Kissinger's oh. brief, briefcases. Huh. And when like for example, when Kissinger was en route to China and was asleep on the plane, that's when Yeoman went in there and photographed all documents, and these were all given to the Chiefs Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
So they are okay. So you've got a president, you've got a secretary of state, yeah. and they have somehow opened their business office in the White House mm -hmm. by separating themselves from the Department of uh, 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 the Military Department. Defense Department and uh, the CIA and the intelligence agencies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's all a show that they're going to run without the participation of these other agencies. That's correct. But they're still getting briefed on what information these other agencies can come up with. Oh, absolutely. And at the same time, the agencies are stealing information to go back to their bosses. Yeah. And so, so that, I mean, this is, this is a white spy, black spy yeah. thing in, on steroids. Yeah. Well, what happened when it was uh, discovered by the plumbers, actually, the plumbers in the White House, which was set up a little secret group to find out where the leaks were coming from, they, they found out it was Yeoman who was uh, doing this uh, process for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and also uh, giving information to Jack Anderson. Jack Anderson. Oh, yeah. Jack Tom. Anderson was, was the big journalist at the time and always a snooper. Yeah. But he was a Mormon and so was uh, the Yeoman uh, Bradford, you know. And so... Uh, 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 so Kissinger, so uh, Nixon and the the, uh, the uh, defense uh, secretary of defense Melvin Laird had this conversation. It's it's a public record where they discuss what they're going to do about this, and they say, can we smear, can we smear Jack Anderson and Yeoman Radford, Yeoman uh, Radford, as being homosexuals uh, uh, because they may have a relationship? They they discuss it, and then they said, no, we can't do that because. Both of them are married. They have children. There's no evidence they are. But it shows what the thinking was going on in those days. Everybody's thinking about sex. Yeah, everybody's thinking about sex. But, but jumping ahead, you know, when it was published in uh, Jack Anderson's columns about uh, the Pentagon secret operation in the White House, this is part of Watergate, Hunt and Liddy uh, met with a, a doctor from the CIA to discuss the killing of Jack Anderson. This is a major part of Watergate. They, that this, this doctor who was on the staff of the CIA said these are the ways that assassinations can take place of Jack Anderson without there being any fingerprints on it and so forth, you know. So, uh, but it, that never did take place. That fell by the wayside as developments went on, but it showed, it showed the climate that was on, going on in those days, okay. In the early 1970s, journalist Jack Anderson exposed sensitive information regarding President Nixon's secret negotiations with China via Pakistan. Charles Radford, a yeoman in the United States Navy who was connected to the circle around Admiral Moore and the Nixon-Kissinger detente efforts, was implicated as the likely source of the leaked information. Charles Radford barely knew renowned muck-raking journalist Jack Anderson, but he was familiar with Anderson's parents, whom he had met during a posting in India in 1970. Charles Radford developed a casual friendship with the older couple, apparently due to a shared faith in Mormonism. In 1970, the Andersons invited Radford to a family reunion where he crossed paths with Jack Anderson in what would seem to be a truly innocuous encounter. A year later, in December 1971, Jack Anderson unexpectedly contacted Radford and invited him to dinner at the Empress, a Chinese restaurant Anderson owned stake in. According to Jim Hogan, Radford accepted the invitation because he was Jack Anderson. He was famous 
The dinner took place on a Sunday evening, and the next day, Anderson's newspaper column, known for its fearless pursuit of insider sources in the fast-paced world of Washington, D.C., featured an article containing explosive revelations. Anderson's column touched on President Nixon's most sensitive undertaking at the time, Henry Kissinger's secret diplomatic negotiations with China. Kissinger was primarily using Pakistan, which had historically maintained close geopolitical relations with China, as a channel. Pakistan's president, Yahya Khan, was particularly close to Beijing and had received significant military aid from China due to rising hostilities with India. China had its reasons to oppose India, as tensions with the Soviet Union had escalated since the Sino-Soviet split and Moscow had chosen to support India. The situation was complex and potentially dangerous. Pakistan's conflict with India complicated matters for the Nixon administration. Publicly, they maintained a position of neutrality. In 1971, when President Khan imposed martial law over East Pakistan, the White House announced that the United States does not support or condone this military action. However, behind closed doors, Nixon and Kissinger embarked on a covert path of tilting towards Pakistan. President Khan was assured that the administration would not do anything to further complicate the situation or embarrass him. What then unfolded was a series of remarkable events. Nixon's rise to the Oval Office depended on the support of the domestic China lobby, and he maintained close relations with the KMT's top leadership. The Kissinger-led initiative toward China drastically undermined the interests of all of these relationships. During his negotiations with China, Kissinger tackily abandoned the hawkish pro-Taiwanese foreign policy. According to Kissinger, the administration was not seeking a two-Chinas nor a one-China, one-Taiwan solution. There was also talk of committing the U.S. military to an exit strategy from Vietnam and reducing the U.S. troop presence in the Middle East. The diplomatic channels of these negotiations were delicate, complex, and, most importantly, secret. Nixon and Kissinger worked hard to keep the agenda hidden from the CIA, the State Department, the Joint Chiefs, the China lobby, and even Soviet interests, as they were all seen as threats to the long-term plan. However, Jack Anderson's column nearly derailed the endeavor. In a single article, he exposed that despite the carefully calculated public position of neutrality, the tilt towards Pakistan was well underway. This threatened to reveal the diplomatic back channel and raise the question to the public, why was the U.S. tilting towards Pakistan? Journalist Clark Mollenhoff who served as special counsel to Nixon in 1969, discussed the implications of Anderson's reporting in a column published on January 22, 1972. Molenhoff wrote 
Kissinger's role in the India-Pakistan policy seems to be faulty, there is a question of why the administration was secretly advocating a tilt for Pakistan when India was able to prove far quicker its overwhelming military superiority. Mollenhoff then sketched out what he saw as the bigger picture, implicating Nixon and Kissinger's drive towards extreme bureaucratic compartmentalization. At both the State and Defense Departments, there is hope that President Nixon will view these errors as evidence that some changes are needed in the National Security Council's method of operations. Both departments point out that this isn't the first time the National Security Council decisions haven't been supported by a realistic appraisal of the facts. Anderson's revelations of the tilt strategy caused a firestorm within the corridors of power. It was quickly determined that the journalist must have had access to at least three highly secret memos, which had only been issued to a select few individuals, including Kissinger, Alexander Haig, Admiral Robert Baylander, Admiral Thomas Moore, and Baylander's assistant, Yeoman Charles Radford. Baylander eliminated himself, Kissinger, and Haig from suspicion, leaving only Radford as the likely culprit. However, what happened next only added to the mystery of the case. Radford, who had served as a document courier and aide to members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the National Security Council, was subjected to a polygraph test by a Pentagon interrogation specialist. When questioned about the theft of confidential memoranda from diplomatic pouches and burn bags, the yeoman became agitated. According to Colony, Radford's concerns stemmed from a very sensitive operation that he couldn't discuss without Admiral Veylander's direct approval. Veylander, who had initially launched the investigation into Radford, tried to squash the investigation as allegations of a secret operation surfaced. However, his attempt failed, and Radford eventually revealed his involvement in a military-led espionage ring. Radford had pilfered confidential files and made copies of thousands of documents. He made notes on the reports of Kissinger's meeting with Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai and other sensitive materials related to the China Initiative. These documents were then handed over to individuals working for the Joint Chiefs of Staff who used them to gain insight into the Nixon-Kissinger strategy, bypassing the carefully orchestrated restrictions on information flow within the upper echelons of the U.S. government. Radford would hand over the documents to Admiral Veylander, who then passed them on to Admiral Moore. Radford claimed that his contribution allowed Moore to anticipate Kissinger's actions and statements in National Security Council meetings. Baylander later hinted at Alexander Haig's involvement in the espionage ring, suggesting that Haig was aware of Radford's tampering with diplomatic pouches. Moreover, Haig had occasionally assigned Radford to accompany Kissinger on diplomatic trips. According to Radford, 
the entire operation aimed to counteract a far-reaching conspiracy taking root at the highest levels of the foreign policy establishment. The conspiracy allegedly centered around Kissinger, who was purported to be an agent of the Rockefeller family and the Council on Foreign Relations, an institution where the Rockefellers held significant influence. As Jim Hogan writes, the purpose of this alleged conspiracy was to win the Soviets' cooperation in guaranteeing the Rockefellers' continued domination over the world's currencies. In exchange for which, Radford insists, Kissinger was to construct a foreign policy that would ensure eventual Soviet hegemony and a one-world government. Radford claimed Baylander and Moore were his sources for this information. While Jim Hogan states the validity of this angle on the affair is not worth commenting on, it is worth noting that Radford's accusations mirror those made by the right-wing anti-communist John Birch Society and other groups of similar beliefs, many of which were intimately connected to the KMT China lobby. For example, figures such as Charles Willoughby made these circles his primary haunt. Many allegations made by John Birch Society affiliates, such as Kissinger being a Soviet mole, appeared in the 1970s with works such as Frank Capel's Henry Kissinger, Soviet Agent, and Gary Allen's Kissinger, The Secret Side of the Secretary of State. Interestingly, Admiral Moore himself maintained strong ties to the John Birch Society and related organizations. These ideas grew more intense in the late 1970s and 1980s, when Moore became affiliated with the American Security Council, a haven for military hawks who helped lay the intellectual groundwork for the so-called Reagan Revolution. Two perplexing loose threads emerge when examining the Radford-Moore affair. First, Moore and the Joint Chiefs were privy to much of the information concerning the China Initiative due to Kissinger's use of the Task Force 157 Weather Channel. Additionally, with Edwin Wilson's involvement in Task Force 157, the CIA and possibly Wilson's KMT China Lobby Associates might have been listening in as well. These two sides intersected through the China Lobby and the intricate networks of defense hawks, military operatives, and Washington insiders. Could this network have been the original catalyst for Moore and Veylander's manipulation of Radford? The second loose thread is Radford's vehement denial of leaking the documents to Jack Anderson. Radford insisted they were distant acquaintances at best, having only met a few times. This raises the question, if Radford didn't leak the documents, who did and for what purpose? It's plausible that Veylander, Moore, or someone acting on their behalf was responsible for the leak. Through their access to the Weather Channel 
and Radford's pilfering, the two gained insight into the tilt strategy and its role within the broader geopolitical landscape that threatened to change the entire direction of the Cold War. They might have hoped to undermine Kissinger's plans by intentionally leaking the information to Anderson and sacrificing Radford in the process. If so, Anderson's meeting with Radford at the Empress suggests that he may have been, at least partially, complicit in this scheme. Surprisingly, Anderson had long-standing ties to the China lobby, particularly with Anna Chenault, the two co-founded the Chinese Refugee Relief Organization, a pro-KMT humanitarian agency with offices just down the street from Robert Keith Gray's H&K and the offices of Wilson's Task Force 157 fronts. There is also the fact that Anderson's column had previously hinted at John F. Kennedy's connection to the Stephen Ward-linked sex ring that sparked the Profumo affair. In the column, Anderson co-wrote the article, Britishers who read American criticisms of Profumo throw back the question, what high American official was involved with Marilyn Monroe? This appeared to be part of a J. Edgar Hoover-connected effort to use sexual blackmail obtained from the broader networks in the Profumo affair against JFK. This indicates that Anderson's column had been weaponized by powerful political factions on certain occasions well before this particular column in the early 1970s. It is also worth noting that in the post-Watergate era, Anderson held accounts and stock in Diplomat National Bank in Washington, D.C., where Anna Chenault sat on the board of directors. Diplomat National Bank was used as a conduit for the Korean CIA and the closely related Unification Church, which, like Anderson, held stock in the bank. Tong Sun Park even told American friends that he was behind the bank and that bank chairman, Charles Kim, was his agent. According to Jonathan Marshall, this wasn't the only suspect bank connected to Anderson. During the 1960s, he owned complimentary shares of the District of Columbia National Bank, which had been organized by Democratic Party fixer Bobby Baker and Ed Levinson, a notorious organized crime insider. Joining Anderson at this bank was Arthur Arundel, who had served under Edward Lansdale in Southeast Asia and was the son of Pepsi lobbyist Russell Arundel. As was mentioned, Pepsi itself was closely tied to the China lobby and the KMT. Even the restaurant used to implicate Radford had connections within this network. Anderson had a stake in the establishment as did Anna Chenault. These connections between Anderson and the China lobby were revealed thanks to a dossier on the journalist compiled by the White House Plumbers. Soon enough, the group, known as the Plumbers, would make history and Jack Anderson would be present. There is every indication that he, like many others in this bizarre network, 
had foreknowledge of the events that were about to take place, events that would later be remembered simply as Watergate. In April 1972, Jack Anderson received a dossier from William Haddad containing information on plans being concocted by the November Group, President Nixon's personal advertising agency, to burglarize the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Complex in Washington, D.C. For reasons that still remain unclear, Anderson appears to have effectively suppressed this information and later mischaracterized the details provided by Haddad. Others who were given the information by Haddad took it more seriously. A month before Anderson was informed, Haddad had alerted the DNC's head, Larry O'Brien, who then put Haddad in touch with the DNC Director of Communications, John Stewart. In late April, Stewart, Haddad, and Haddad's source, a private investigator named A.J. Wollstone-Smith, met in New York City to discuss the accusations. This meeting occurred roughly a month prior to the first break-in at the Watergate complex. William Haddad and A.J. Wollstone-Smith were no strangers to intrigue. Haddad was a longtime political insider within the Democratic establishment and had been particularly close to the Kennedy family. He held various bureaucratic positions, married a Roosevelt daughter, and made a name for himself as a muckraker. It was through the latter role that he became close to Woolston Smith, whom he employed from time to time. Woolston Smith had previously worked for Robert Mayhew's private detective firm and collaborated with the CIA on its resettlement programs for Cuban exiles. Mayhew himself was no stranger to the CIA's secret wars on Cuba, a background shared by countless individuals interwoven in the Watergate saga, and some investigators have compiled considerable evidence implicating Mayhew in the 1968 assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Woolston Smith likely came upon the information concerning the DNC via convoluted networks that snaked across the often incestuous worlds of private investigators and security firms. As Jim Hogan details, Woolston Smith's secretary, Tony Shimone, was the daughter of a Runyonesque former Washington police detective named Joseph Shimone. A convicted wiretapper in his own right, Shimone was the partner of one John Leon in a detective agency named Allied Investigators Incorporated. One of the investigators with whom Shimon and Leon were allied with on a part-time basis was Louis James Russell. 
Lewis James Russell supplied tips to Jack Anderson and, in late 1971, was employed by General Security Services, the same company that had been hired by the DNC to provide security for their Watergate offices and the same company who would have handled the information provided by William Haddad. Shortly after Haddad notified the DNC of Woolston Smith's information, Russell resigned from General Security Services and went to work for McCord Associates, the security consulting firm owned by former CIA operative James McCord. At that time, James McCord was serving as the head of security for the Committee for the Re-Election of the President, the fundraising body for President Nixon's re-election campaign. Lewis James Russell also worked part-time for the same committee. James McCord was one of the White House plumbers. The team put together to plug, prevent, and investigate information leaks which were endemic in the highly paranoid world of 1970s Washington, D.C. Operating alongside McCord was former FBI agent G. Gordon Liddy and CIA veteran E. Howard Hunt. Another CIA man in the plumbers was Frank Sturgis, who had served alongside E. Howard Hunt in the agency's anti-Castro operations. When McCord and Sturgis were arrested in the Watergate DNC offices in July 1972, they were accompanied by a group of CIA-trained Cuban exiles. Virgilio Gonzalez, Eugenio Martinez, and Bernard Barker James McCord's background in the FBI and CIA, particularly his work within the CIA's Office of Security, where he was assigned to the security research staff, honing the craft of electronic surveillance, eavesdropping, and audio countermeasures to protect sensitive CIA stations and outposts in Europe, raises questions about the nature of the Watergate burglary and its sloppiness. With McCord's expertise in electronic eavesdropping, surveillance, and audio countermeasure programs, one might expect a more professional execution of the break-in. While under the command of the security research staff, McCord served as deputy to Paul Gaynor, the head of the security research staff and a key player in some of the CIA's darkest projects. Under the auspices of the security research staff, Gaynor was involved in projects such as Artichoke and its predecessor, Bluebird, which focused on special interrogation methods involving drugs, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, 
and psychological harassment, all of which paved the way for the notorious MKUltra program. According to Jim Hogan, Gaynor was also reputed to have maintained extensive files on U.S. citizens, particularly focusing on their sexual proclivities. The existence of these files was later confirmed by the 1975 official report of the Rockefeller Commission, which dedicated a section to discussing the file systems maintained by the CIA's Directorate of Operations. One telling passage of the report reads, Miscellaneous files maintained by the Office of Security includes lists of individuals with known or suspected foreign intelligence connections, files associated with handling defectors, lists of individuals from whom crank calls have been received by the agency, and lists of persons previously charged with security violations. The Office of Security formerly maintained extensive computer lists of approximately 300,000 persons who had been arrested for offenses related to homosexuality, but these lists were destroyed in 1973. Gaynor's proclivity for collecting dirt, particularly of the sexual variety, brought him into contact with Roy Blick, the head of the Washington, D.C. so-called Morals Squad. The Morals Squad would be equivalent to modern-day vice units and had conducted a series of anti-homosexual campaigns under Blick's leadership. According to author Anna Lebovsky, Roy Blick had a penchant for targeting politicians and influential people in the Beltway. Like Gaynor, Blick kept rigorous logs on numerous private citizens recorded on index cards that were stacked high in a safe in Blick's office. When he left the department, he threatened to keep the key. Blick's anti-homosexual campaigns were controversial and often criticized. His actions became a topic of discussion and even jokes within certain circles. E. Bennett Williams, a D.C. attorney connected to Watergate, would often perform a comedic routine at the Atlas Club, imitating Blick as he spent hours at a urinal hoping for a homosexual individual to approach him so that he could make a morals arrest. During the CIA's own information collection program on homosexuals and other deviants, police forces across the country were marshaled into the effort, freely turning over their files and working hand-in-glove with the agency. Yet, when it came to Roy Blick, cooperation with the CIA went beyond simple file sharing. Numerous declassified files show Blick worked closely with the CIA. For example, he made his own contacts at the British Embassy 
available to William Harvey as part of the counterintelligence operation against the Kim Philby spy ring. Another agency program of great importance was Operation Chaos, the CIA's largest domestic espionage operation initiated during the Johnson administration to monitor the anti-war and civil rights movements in the United States. James Angleton, the paranoid CIA counterintelligence chief, had been the driving force behind the inception of Operation Chaos. To accomplish the operational objectives of chaos, multiple subprograms were created and adjacent programs were enlisted to support the operation. One such subprogram, dubbed Merrimack, focused on CIA infiltration of anti-war and peace groups in the Washington, D.C. area in order to gather information on the organizations, their members, sources of funding, and plans. Merrimack provided much of the information it gathered directly to Operation Chaos and was run from the CIA's Office of Security. As Shane O'Sullivan points out, James McCord worked as chief of the Office of Security's Physical Security Division, a position that would have put him in direct cooperation with both the Merrimack and Chaos programs. Interestingly, E. Howard Hunt appears to have been delivering sealed envelopes and packages believed to have contained information on the White House plumbers to Richard Ober, a top CIA official who was at the time overseeing Operation Chaos. Shane O'Sullivan has also drawn parallels between James McCord's post-CIA security firm, McCord Associates, and the CIA's proprietary firm's involved in Merrimack, chaos, and general counterintelligence concerns. One example is Anderson Security, set up in 1962 to support the Office of Security. Even after Merrimack was supposedly terminated in 1968, Anderson Security was, as late as 1971, managing infiltration and espionage of dissident groups in Washington, D.C. on behalf of the Office of Security. Intriguingly, E. Howard Hunt, during the same time he was delivering files to Richard Ober, seems to have crossed paths with Anderson Security as he hired the firm to carry out security sweeps of the offices for the Committee for the Re-Election of the President. All of this suggests that the Plumbers Unit may have had connections to long-running CIA information collection operations 
and security matters. The background of James McCord in the Office of Security and E. Howard Hunt's involvement with Ober and Anderson Security support this possibility. Although both McCord and Hunt claimed not to have met each other until their mutual involvement with the Committee for the Re-Election of the President. However, there are reasons to doubt this. Hunt had been active in the CIA's anti-Castro operations, where he had worked alongside David Atlee Phillips, a CIA propagandist and later the eventual chief of the CIA's Western Hemisphere Division, which encompassed the Caribbean and Latin America. In January 1961, James McCord was temporarily detailed to Phillips to run a counterintelligence operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, a pro-Castro activist group. The possibility that McCord and Hunt knew each other from operating in the same web of overlapping CIA operations in the 1950s raises other questions, such as why were the plumbers being stocked with CIA agents and why was Hunt turning over information to the CIA? Interestingly, this was happening at a time when President Nixon rightfully suspicious of the CIA, was seeking to curb the agency's power. There were initial plans to exclude Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, from National Security Council meetings. Although the administration eventually backed away from this, it had engaged in consistent bureaucratic battles that caused headaches for the CIA. According to Henry Kissinger, part of the reason for this was Nixon's belief that the CIA was a refuge of Ivy League intellectuals opposed to him. The connection between James McCord and E. Howard Hunt, along with the presence of CIA agents within the Plumbers Unit, suggests that there might have been deeper motives and connections within the Watergate scandal it raises questions about the extent of the CIA's involvement in the events leading up to Watergate and the reasons behind their participation. The fact that this occurred during a time when Nixon was trying to limit the CIA's power further complicates the relationship between the Nixon administration, the CIA, and the Watergate scandal. Regardless of whatever else was going on in the complex web of intrigue surrounding the Watergate scandal, the House of Cards collapsed on June 17th when officers arrested James McCord, Frank Sturgis, Virgilio Gonzalez, Eugenio Martinez, and Bernard Barker inside the DNC offices at the Watergate complex. Upon their arrest, Martinez is said to have swallowed a key in an attempt to conceal its existence. The arrest was led by 
Carl Schaffler, a detective in the D.C. Police's Criminal Intelligence Division, who had been nicknamed Little Blick due to his similarities with the infamous Captain Roy Blick. Soon after, it was revealed that a previous break-in had occurred. Bugs had been planted in the DNC offices and James McCord had set up a listening post in a rented room in the Howard Johnson Motor Lodge across the street from the Watergate complex. The morning after the break-in, DNC Deputy Chairman Sam Gregg contacted well-known Washington lawyer and DNC's general counsel, Joseph Califano Jr. Greg informed Califano about the break-in and the presence of photographic equipment in the offices. Califano advised Greg that the DNC should fully cooperate with the D.C. police. According to Califano, Promptly after ending his phone call with Sam Gregg, he phoned Howard Simons, the managing editor at the Washington Post who had been on duty that weekend. During the phone call, Califano told Simons there had been a break-in at the DNC. We don't know who it was, but it looked suspicious. The fact that the DNC and the Washington Post shared the same general counsel, Joseph Califano Jr., is a surprising coincidence. However, it is Califano's deeper history and the connections he had established over the decade prior to the break-in that intensify the intrigue surrounding the Watergate scandal. In the early 1960s, Califano worked at the prestigious law firm Dewey Ballantyne, with Dewey here referring to the one and only New York Governor Thomas Dewey. Before being tapped to serve as special counsel to the Department of Defense's general counsel, within a year, he was promoted to the position of special assistant to the U.S. Secretary of the Army, Cyrus Vance. Intriguingly, this was at the same time Cyrus Vance was delving into the covert world of the CIA and the secret wars being waged around the globe. During his time as Vance's assistant, Califano was deployed to numerous coordinating bodies that facilitated collaboration between the CIA and the Army for covert operations against Castro's Cuba. Internal CIA memorandum and the more recently declassified Califano papers exposed his participation in Operation Mongoose, which would have connected him with a wide array of notable figures such as Edward Lansdale and Ted Shackley. Following Operation Mongoose, Califano was assigned to its successor, the Interdepartmental Coordinating Committee of Cuban Affairs, where he worked closely with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This is evidenced by memoranda 
Califano sent to the Joint Chiefs outlining special actions. Califano even had his own assistant during his time with the anti-Castro coordinating committees. One, young, Alexander Haig. Haig later summarized the nature of some of their activities for historian Gus Russo, stating, I was part of it as deputy to Joe Califano and military assistant to General Vance. We were conducting two raids a week at the height of that program against mainland Cuba. People were being killed, sugar mills were being blown up, bridges were demolished, we were using fast boats and motherships, and the United States Army was supporting and training these forces. This was after the missile crisis, when the Cuban Coordinating Committee was set up in 1963. General Vance, the Secretary of the Army, was presiding over the State Department, the CIA, and the National Security Council. I was intimately involved. As late as January 1964, Haig was working with Califano when the lawyer became the Department of Defense's executive agent for Cuban affairs. Through this position, he was involved in the management and resettlement of Cuban refugees, helping to find homes and employment for scores of CIA-trained exile fighters. It is possible, if not probable, that this would have brought Califano and Alexander Haig into contact with a future private investigator, A.J. Woolston Smith. The same Woolston Smith who would come to possess curious foreknowledge of the Watergate break-ins through his connections to Lou Russell. As for the Washington Post, journalists Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein played a crucial role in exposing the Watergate scandal. According to the official narrative, the two reporters initially worked separately, digging into the murky connections between former CIA agents and secretive security units like the plumbers. However, at the behest of the newspaper's leadership, which included Howard Simons, the man whom Califano contacted the morning following the break-in, the two journalists began to collaborate, sharing their resources and contacts to investigate the case further. The networks of sources that Woodward and Bernstein cultivated suggests that other dynamics were in play. For example, Robert Bennett, the owner of the public relations firm Robert R. Mullen and Company, stated that he had been feeding stories to Bob Woodward with the understanding that there would be no attribution to himself. Intriguingly, Robert R. Mullen and Company was also the firm E. Howard Hunt had gone to work for under the recommendation of CIA Director 
Richard Helms following Hunt's questionable retirement from the agency. Furthermore, the firm itself was closely connected to the CIA. An undated agency summary drafted at some point during the Watergate affair noted that Robert R. Mullen and Company has been utilized by the CIA's central cover staff since 1963. Mr. Mullen has provided sensitive cover support overseas for agency employees and he was instrumental in the formation of the Cuban Freedom Committee. The Cuban Freedom Committee was similar to CIA projects such as Radio Free Europe and broadcast anti-Castro propaganda directly into Cuba. As for Bob Woodward, his background in the military which was obfuscated in the official narrative, raises questions about potential connections to key figures in the Watergate scandal. Following his graduation from Yale, Woodward spent four years of sea duty as communications officer in the United States Navy. In this capacity, he served under two superiors that would go on to land important positions at the Pentagon. The first being Rear Admiral Francis Fitzpatrick, who became the Assistant Chief of Naval Operations for Communications and Cryptology. The second being Admiral Robert Vaylander, the top assistant to Admiral Moorer and associate of Alexander Haig, who would later be intimately involved in the Radford Moore espionage ring. In August 1969, Woodward, still a young, enterprising naval officer, arrived in Washington, D.C. to occupy a post at the Pentagon, once again putting him in close proximity to Rear Admiral Fitzpatrick and Admiral Vaylander. According to journalist and author Len Kolodny, Woodward was tasked with overseeing approximately 30 sailors who manned the terminals, teletypes, and classified coding machines at the Naval Communication Center through which all Navy traffic flowed. From routine orders to top-secret messages, it was a sensitive position that afforded Woodward access to more than 100 communication channels. Among them, according to Admiral Fitzpatrick, was the top-secret SR-1 channel, through which the Navy sent and received its most important messages. SR-1 is more familiar to us under its colloquial name, the Weather Channel, the secret communication system utilized by Task Force 157. This placed Woodward in direct contact with the cable traffic of the ultra-secret unit, which in one direction was connected to Edwin Wilson, Robert Keith Gray, and the China Lobby Complex, and in the other was connected to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Nixon Administration's
power struggles over East Asian foreign policy and overarching bureaucratic organization. Furthermore, in this position, Woodward would have reported directly to Admiral Thomas Moore, who had originally made SR-1 available to Henry Kissinger while also trying to undermine his efforts in the China Initiative. According to Kolodny's sources, which included Admiral Moore himself, Woodward also served as a briefer, collecting information from various sources for assimilation and presentation to his commanding officers. Moore was not the only military official to receive Woodward's briefings. Kolodny writes, On his briefing assignment, Woodward was often sent across the river from the Pentagon to the basement of the White House, where he would enter the offices of the National Security Council. There, Woodward would act as a briefer to Alexander Haig. The suppressed connection between Woodward and Alexander Haig led Kolodny to suggest that Haig was the infamous Deep Throat, the mysterious informant who provided now Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein with vital information during the Watergate investigation. However, Mark Felt a veteran FBI official, would later claim to be the real deep throat, complicating Kolodny's Hague thesis. Mark Felt had held positions in the FBI that would have certainly given him access to significant information. For example, he oversaw Co-Intel Pro operations before becoming assistant director of the Bureau in 1972. He also harbored a personal animosity towards the Nixon administration, which had passed over him as new FBI director following the death of J. Edgar Hoover. Despite this, Robert Getlin, Kolodny's co-author, points out that certain essential pieces of information simply could not have been known by Felt at the time. As a result, it has been popularly posited that Deep Throat was most likely a composite of multiple informants. The Watergate scandal stands as one of the most significant political crises in the latter half of the 20th century. It toppled an entire administration and ignited a decade of power struggles, reform efforts, and bureaucratic changes. Although, what's most remarkable is that, despite the scandal's impact, the true reason for the break-ins remains shrouded in mystery. Various explanations and interpretations have been offered even by the burglars themselves. James McCord claimed they broke in to place listening devices in Larry O'Brien's offices, while E. Howard Hunt suggested the team 
was dispatched to unearth evidence of illicit campaign contributions being made to the DNC by Fidel Castro. However, as Jim Hogan persistently points out, there is no evidence to support either of these claims. The FBI never found proof of the alleged bugs, which, according to Hogan, would not have functioned, as O'Brien's office was part of the interior suite at the DNC and was shielded from James McCord's listening post in the motel across the street from the Watergate complex. The Castro claims also lack evidence. No proof has ever emerged that Fidel Castro was funneling money to DNC politicians, meaning it is highly unlikely that James McCord, E. Howard Hunt, and their co-conspirators were searching for this information. Additionally, the most probable location of information of this nature, the office of the DNC treasurer, was left completely untouched during the break-ins. There is also the matter of unexplained evidence, the most important of which being the enigmatic key possessed by Eugenio Martinez. At the time of the arrest, the matching lock for the key was never discovered. However, subsequent investigations revealed that the key fit the lock for the office of Maxine Wells, the secretary to R. Spencer Oliver, whose Watergate office had been tapped. According to arresting officer Carl Schaffler, photographic equipment was clamped to the top of Wells' desk. In light of this information, Len Kolodny raises the question, why would a Watergate burglar have a key to Wells' desk in his possession? And what items of interest to a Watergate burglar were maintained in her locked desk. Alfred Baldwin, a former FBI agent hired by James McCord to monitor the calls being made from Spencer Oliver's phone, stated that the secretaries were actively using the phone due to Oliver's frequent absence from the office. Anthony Lucas, a veteran journalist, cited Baldwin as saying, Some of the conversations were explicitly intimate. So spicy were some of the conversations that they have given rise to unconfirmed reports that the telephone was being used for some sort of call girl service catering to congressmen and other prominent Washingtonians. The allegations concerning a potential Watergate-connected call girl service are not based solely on these phone calls. There is evidence of several sex rings 
being operated at the Columbia Plaza Apartments, which were located adjacent to both the Watergate Complex and the Howard Johnson Motor Lodge, where James McCord's listening post was situated. According to Jim Hogan, these rings were managed by at least two madams known as Lil Lori and Helen Henderson. He also identifies another woman in the ring as Tess. Hogan writes, Besides their location at the Columbia Plaza Apartments, the prostitutes had at least two things in common. The first was the homogeny of their clients. With few exceptions, they were professional men, lobbyists, lawyers, stockbrokers, physicians, congressional aides, and real estate developers. They were among the movers and shakers of the Capitol, and included at least one U.S. senator, an astronaut, a Saudi prince, a clutch of U.S. and KCIA intelligence agents, and a host of prominent Democrats. According to a 1971 police intelligence report, the Watergate Hotel was a prime source of their business. The second thing adding to the complexity of the situation, Lou Russell, who was connected to James McCord and other enigmatic figures involved in the Watergate affair, was well acquainted with the proprietors of the Call Girl operations. Hogan writes, According to Russell's friends, Russell chose to idle away his leisure time in the apartments at the Columbia Plaza. He was a friend to many of the girls, a sometimes customer, a freelance bouncer, and a source of referrals. However, Russell may have played a more significant role at those apartments. According to Philip Bailey, he encountered Lou Russell at the apartments with recording equipment, cameras, and two-way mirrors to record the girl's clients. Philip Bailey was a D.C. lawyer with a penchant for the darker aspects of life. He portrayed himself as a well-connected player, an operative in the Capitol's underbelly. Bailey's self-declared role model was Bobby Baker, the notoriously corrupt political fixer for the Democratic establishment during the 1950s and 1960s. Baker himself operated within a network of Texas-based businessmen and organized crime figures. It is possible that Bailey, imitating his role model, was seeking to begin his own ascent in networks of a similar nature. His preferred clientele reflects this possibility and included 
petty criminals, drug dealers, and prostitutes. In Secret Agenda, Bailey is described as being close to the call girl Jim Hogan dubbed Tess. In Silent Coup, Len Kolodny identifies Bailey's associate in the call girl ring as Kathy Dieter. However, her real name was Erica Heidi Riken, a woman who between 1965 and 1966 had performed as a stripper at Washington's Blue Mirror Club. Heidi Riken, like Philip Bailey, was well-connected. Her best friend was Maureen Biner, who at the time was dating John Dean, the Nixon administration's White House counsel. John Dean and Maureen Biner were later married, and she changed her name to Maureen Dean. However, for a brief period in the late 1960s, Biner was married to a scout for the Dallas Cowboys named George Owen. Owen had inside access to top Texas power players. His personal friends included oil heir Clint Murchison Jr., Bedford Vine, the offspring of a prominent Dallas family with numerous interests including oil, real estate, industry, insurance, and law, as well as Democrat Party fixer Bobby Baker and Gordon McLendon, a prominent radio man and occasional intelligence asset. Gordon McClendon's own close associates included Jack Ruby, the mobster famous for killing Lee Harvey Oswald, as well as David Atlee Phillips, the CIA officer connected to both E. Howard Hunt and James McCord. In her autobiography, Maureen Dean writes of an extended trip to Lake Tahoe with a good and a new friend I had met through George, Heidi Riken. What's intriguing here is that through their mutual connection with George Owen and the high-profile individuals of Dallas, Texas, Maureen and Heidi Riken were moving into circles that significantly overlapped with organized crime interests. George McLendon's friend, Jack Ruby, was a player in the Dallas criminal underworld. While the Murchison oil and construction interests employed lobbyist Irving Davidson, who also represented the CIA, the FBI, Israel, and organized crime bosses such as Carlos Marcello, whom the Murchisons maintained their own contacts to as well. Heidi Riken maintained her ties to these figures 
even after her move to Washington, D.C. According to author and journalist Phil Stanford, her contact book contained information for Vine, McClendon, Murchison, and other prominent figures. The roster of names helps to further illustrate the convergence of Texas business interests and organized crime. For example, one of the names was Fred Black Jr., a close friend and business partner of the controversial Bobby Baker, as well as an associate of Mo Dallitz, Johnny Roselli, and Clifford Jones, the mob-linked lieutenant governor of Nevada. Clifford Jones was himself an alleged confidant of Meyer Lansky and represented Lansky's interests in several Vegas casinos. It might be significant then that Fred Black Jr., who maintained an apartment in the Watergate complex, also owned stake in several Caribbean casinos owned by Clifford Jones. Another name that appeared in Heidi Riken's contact book was Ben Barnes, a Texas real estate magnate who served as the state's lieutenant governor between 1968 and 1973. Among Barnes' close circle of contacts was Herman Beebe. In the 1980s, the two men were linked to a string of collapsed saving and loans, many of which bore the fingerprints of organized crime and intelligence agencies. Even in the 1960s and 1970s, Beebe was making the rounds, establishing a network of banks and real estate ventures that laid the groundwork for his later escapades and were also tightly interwoven with the criminal enterprises of Carlos Marcello. Heidi Riken's Texas contacts aside, she developed her own personal ties to powerful organized crime figures. While involved with Philip Bailey and active in the call girl rings operating in the apartments adjacent to the Watergate complex, she was also reportedly the girlfriend of Washington, D.C. mob boss Joe Neslin. Briefly diving into Neslin's background, the mobster was born in Washington, D.C. in September 1913. Neslin was first arrested in 1931 for violation of illegal whiskey laws. Over the years, he accumulated an impressive number of encounters with the law, primarily for his persistent involvement in illicit gambling activities. Neslin's early gambling operations were run from establishments like the Spartan Club, and many of his ventures were carried out in partnership with Charles Charlie the Blade Torin. A 1962 FBI report identified Charlie the Blade as the collection man for Joe Neslin. 
Additionally, their gambling interests intertwined with those of Dino Cellini, Meyer Lansky's top casino operator in the Caribbean. For example, Neslin held a stake in London's Colony Club, which had been operated for a time by Dino Cellini. Prior to this, in pre-revolutionary Cuba, Neslin had worked at the Tropicana Club in Havana, where Cellini acted as a manager. During the same time, Charlie the Blade Torin was managing the nearby Capri. In the wake of Castro's 1959 revolution, Cellini, Torin, Meyer Lansky's brother, Jake Lansky, and Florida mob boss, Santo Traficante, were all imprisoned together in a camp called Trace Cornea. Expanding on these ties, in the early 1960s, Joe Neslin and Charlie the Blade Torin co-owned a posh Miami beach house. In 1964, this property was inhabited by Alvin Malnick, a mafia financier who was something of a protege of Meyer Lansky. Malnick, during this period, was plugged into the web of international banking that organized crime groups surrounding Meyer Lansky used to move money from their real estate interests, narcotics trade, and casino skimming. Malnick was also the counsel for the Allied Empire Corporation, a major stockholder in Lansky's offshore Bank of World Commerce. Given these sorts of associations, it is perhaps noteworthy that George Owen told Len Kolodny that he first met Heidi Riken in the mid-1960s on the Caribbean island of Antigua. Owen had been visiting the island with his good friends Bedford Vine and Gilbert Lee Beckley. Gilbert Lee Beckley was a world-renowned gambler and bookie who was described by Time magazine as a valuable man to the Cosa Nostra. Beckley co-owned a hotel on the island named the Miramar, which is where George Owen first crossed paths with Heidi Riken. An FBI report from 1966 exposes Gilbert Beckley's and the Hotel Miramar's organized crime ties, stating, Charlie the Blade Torin was dispatched to Antigua to protect Beckley's interests, and, in addition to Beckley, co-investors in the Miramar included Anthony Fat Tony Salerno of the Genovese crime family. Joe Neslin's own D.C. operations seem to have been enabled by extensive corruption inside the local police force. An FBI report from late May 1962 describes information provided by an informant with intimate knowledge of police involvement with organized crime in the area. The informant 
whose name is withheld in the report, stated that he felt that his life and that of his family would be placed in jeopardy if knowledge of his interviews and cooperation with the FBI were even suspected by the various members of the Washington, D.C. area gambling element. The informant continues, No gambler operates in the Washington, D.C. area unless he obtains protection from the Metropolitan Police Department. According to the anonymous informant, this was because influence over the gambling rackets was divided up according to the various police precincts. Gambling backers often had to deal directly with the captain of the particular precinct their racket was located within. Perhaps the most interesting information in the report concerns Roy Blick, the D.C. morals officer who worked intimately with the CIA. The informant claimed he was told by Billy Mitchell and feel certain that it is true that Snags Lewis was paying Roy Blick and Chief of Police Barnett. He had been recently advised that Snags Lewis, Billy Mitchell, and Joe Neslin are currently doing business with Roy Blick. So how does Heidi Riken's call girl operation tie in to the Watergate affair? Sometime in 1971, Heidi Riken approached Philip Bailey with the proposition of leveraging his Democratic National Committee connections in order to broaden the clientele of the Columbia Plaza call-girl operation. The idea was that Spencer Oliver, the man connecting Philip Bailey to the DNC, or another DNC employee, would be able to steer high rollers to Riken's Columbia Plaza operation. According to Bailey, he successfully established contact with someone inside the DNC, leading to the setup of a call-out line from their offices. The line was allegedly located in Spencer Oliver's office. However, it would seem that Spencer Oliver was not the person negotiating with Philip Bailey. As 1971 transitioned into 1972, the operation flourished, with at least one client per day being arranged through the DNC offices. According to Len Kolodny, who cites statements made by Bailey himself, other clients included men from the State Department, major hotels in town, a private club, and the Library of Congress. However, Philip Bailey's luck would soon run out. On April 6, 1972, the D.C. police and the FBI raided his home while he was preoccupied in court. Authorities discovered and seized a treasure trove of incriminating items, including sex paraphernalia, video recording equipment, 
photographs, home movies, ledgers, and contact books. Each piece of evidence was taken into police custody and logged. Surprisingly, the reason for the raid was totally unrelated to the rackets operating out of the Watergate complex and the Columbia Plaza apartments. The raid was a result of Philip Bailey facing charges for violating the Mann Act. It would appear that the corrupt lawyer had drugged a university student, took pornographic pictures of her, and then used these photos as blackmail. Allegedly, Bailey threatened to send copies of these photos to her school administrators and her parents unless she submitted to the attentions of Bailey's political cronies and business associates. Unfortunately, she did submit, engaging in sexual acts with 15 consecutive partners at a party hosted by Philip Bailey in a suburban Maryland house. Phil Stanford, in his book, White House Call Girl, offers a more complex account of the event. He identifies the student as Astrid Laflangue, whom Bailey had tried to recruit into Heidi Riken's operations. However, Riken rejected Laflangue, deeming her too low class and lacking the sophistication required for the operation she envisioned. Festering from this rejection, Astrid Laflangue began providing information to the Capitol Police Vice Squad. Her cooperation with law enforcement marked the beginning of Bailey's legal troubles. Within a month, Assistant U.S. Attorney John Rudy was building a substantial case against Philip Bailey. Following Laflangue, Numerous women came forward with accusations against the corrupt attorney, and lists of potential witnesses were being compiled. Nevertheless, media coverage of Bailey's situation and the severity of his crimes remained limited. However, the public obscurity of the case vanished on June 9th when the Washington Star published a front-page story titled Capitol Hill Call Girl Ring Uncovered. One section of the article stated, The FBI has uncovered a high-priced call girl ring allegedly headed by a Washington attorney and staffed by secretaries and office workers from Capitol Hill and involving at least one White House secretary. The piece seemed to directly reference the Riken call girl ring, but misconstrued the extent of Philip Bailey's actual involvement. While the source for the Washington Star article remains unknown, the story did raise concerns throughout Washington, D.C. Shortly after the paper was printed, John Dean contacted John Rudy 
demanding access to all documentary evidence involved in the Bailey investigation. John Rudy and his assistants were personally summoned to the White House, where the evidence, including Philip Bailey's contact book, was presented to John Dean. Rudy would later tell Len Kolodny that Dean's main focus, aside from potential sources for the star's story, was Bailey's black contact book. Many individuals in this book had been concealed behind aliases. Two of these aliases were Kathy Dieter and Clout. Though painstaking, John Rudy claims to have verified the individuals behind these aliases, identifying Kathy Dieter as Heidi Riken, while Clout was her close friend and former roommate, Maureen Biner. It is important to note that at this time, John Rudy was unaware that John Dean was dating his future wife, Maureen Biner, or the fact that she was living with him. The timeline of these events is telling. The raid on Philip Bailey occurred on April 6, 1972. One day later, on April 7th, the Committee for the Re-Election of the President provided G. Gordon Liddy with $83,000. On April 12th, James McCord received a significant portion of this money to purchase electronic surveillance equipment. Jim Hogan notes that three days later, on April 15th, William Haddad wrote to Jack Anderson for the first time, informing him of plans to spy on Democrats. The first break-ins at the DNC then took place towards the end of May. Then, on June 9th, the Washington Star article ran, and John Dean came into contact with Bailey's Black Book. On June 12th, Jeb Magruder, a high-level Republican political insider involved with the Nixon administration and the White House plumbers, who would ultimately serve time in prison for his role in Watergate, suggested another break-in to G. Gordon Liddy, ostensibly to obtain the files of DNC Chairman Larry O'Brien. However, this plan did not stem from the mind of Magruder himself. It was, in fact, John Dean's idea. Within five days, the schemes imploded. Police were making arrests in the DNC offices, and Eugenio Martinez was attempting to prevent the mysterious key from falling into the hands of the authorities. This timeline of events does raise questions, such as, is it possible that John Dean devised the break-ins in an attempt to secure potentially incriminating information related 
to the Watergate Columbia Plaza call girl ring. The same ring that was connected to his future wife through her friendship with Heidi Riken. Additionally, with organized crime, primarily Heidi Riken's relationship with Joe Neslin, as well as rumors circulating about high-profile Washingtonians participating in prostitution rings, the situation was undoubtedly explosive. Perhaps John Dean was seeking to stamp out any revelations regarding these relationships that might arise from the investigation of Philip Bailey. Another unanswered question is, was there a potential connection between the Watergate call-girl ring and the sexual blackmail operations alleged to have been carried out by Edwin Wilson. Jim Hogan presents provocative evidence regarding this connection. For example, the trick book maintained by Barbara Rallabate, one of the former madams of the Columbia Plaza call girl operations, reportedly contained the names Tungsten Park and Ed Wilson. Tungsten Park seems to be a clear reference to Tong Sun Park. Furthermore, Hogan writes that the apartment owned by Tess, who was actually Heidi Riken, had been rented in Philip Bailey's name, but was actually paid for by a wealthy defense contractor and sometime lobbyist on Capitol Hill who owned a huge farm and claimed to hell from Houston, Texas. Each of these descriptions matches Edwin Wilson, who had indeed worked as a lobbyist covertly representing the CIA, owned a vast farm in Virginia, and managed lucrative defense contracts through the Task Force 157 front companies, one of which, around world shipping and chartering, was based in Houston, Texas. The implications of this connection are immense. If Ed Wilson and Tong Sun Park were indeed linked to the Watergate ring, it would mean the scandal was part of a network that encompassed the activities of Robert Keith Gray, the Georgetown Club, the internal politics of Task Force 157, and, ultimately, forces that seemed to be aligned against President Richard Nixon and his administration. From this perspective, the Watergate incident seems less like a clumsy burglary gone wrong and more like an elaborate setup followed by controlled demolition. Intriguingly, the shadow of the CIA in the Watergate affair persisted even during the trials following the break-ins. This can be demonstrated by the appointment of Leon Jaworski, as the Watergate Special Prosecutor. 
as a partner in the Houston-based law firm Fulbright and Jaworski. Leon Jaworski served on numerous boards and maintained affiliations with a wide range of powerful interests. He was a trustee at the M.D. Anderson Foundation, which was established in the late 1930s to help build the now-renowned medical center in Houston, Texas. At some point toward the end of the 1950s, M.D. Anderson became a conduit for funds originating from the CIA. As a trustee, Jaworski was aware of the nature of the funds and had signed off on them, as had the foundation's president, John Freeman, who was also a former partner at Fulbright and Jaworski. Another Houston-based foundation channeling CIA funds during the same period was the San Jacinto Fund. Leading the San Jacinto Fund was Ernest Cockrell Jr., who was also a board member of the wealthy Bank of the Southwest. Jaworski and his law partners were also with the Bank of the Southwest. According to to a 1977 article in Texas Monthly, Fulbright and Jaworski had their closest and most lucrative relationship with the Bank of the Southwest. In addition to serving as the bank's legal counsel, members of the firm dominated the board of directors and occupied the top executive positions. Another director for Bank of the Southwest was businessman John Day Manil, who represented the Schlumberger oil interest in America at the time. Schlumberger oil would later be implicated in covert support for anti-Castro Cuban exiles, suggesting yet another CIA element within this network of individuals. By the time the Watergate scandal erupted, Jaworski had found himself working closely with a veteran of these same anti-Castro operations, Alexander Haig. Their relationship was so unique that Haig acted as a channel for the flow of information to Leon Jaworski. Based on this relationship, it would appear that Haig had played a direct albeit shadowy, role in shaping the overall direction of the Watergate prosecution. Shifting our focus back to Robert Keith Gray, the complex web of connections constituting the underbelly of the Watergate affair was not the only instance where his name was linked to sexual blackmail rings. As was previously discussed, Gray's name had surfaced in connection with the Franklin scandal, and in the early 1980s, surfaced again during an investigation into an alleged sex and drug ring operating on Capitol Hill. The scandal briefly captured media attention, but is now nothing more than a footnote in history.
An FBI spokesman said today that so far the Bureau has not been able to corroborate charges that congressional pages have been pressured into sexual activity with members of Congress. And the spokesman said it's not a widespread, organized problem. Still, it is a scandal, but as Carol Simpson reports now, it cannot be considered surprising. ABC News talked with a 20-year-old former page who was interviewed by the FBI for two hours yesterday. He gave investigators the names of members of Congress and congressional staffers. He said shared sex and drugs with teenage pages three years ago. On at least one occasion, a certain uh, official in the House invited several pages out to his house where cocaine and uh, hashish and marijuana were freely available to the pages. If you could put a number on the number of congressional employees that you may have direct knowledge of involvement in illicit activity. How many would that be? Direct knowledge, 15 to 20. The names of congressmen alleged to be involved in the scandal have remained secret, but Idaho Republican Congressman Larry Craig, concerned that his name had been implicated, issued a public denial. Persons who are unmarried, as I am, uh, by choice or by circumstance, have always been the subject of innuendos, gossip, and false accusations. I think this is despicable. The charges of wrongdoing by congressmen with pages has been described in a book written by a former page. In it, he states, I knew of at least two homosexual congressmen, as did most everyone else at Capitol Page School. One of these congressmen actively sought out and apparently still seeks out homosexual relationships with minor male pages. The Page Boy scandal began when Leroy Williams Jr., a congressional page, high school students employed to perform various administrative tasks, made startling accusations that he had had sex with three congressional House members and procured homosexual prostitutes for a senator. The latter incident reportedly took place at the Watergate complex. Initial reports suggested that unnamed witnesses came forward with further information on sexual activities between politicians and pages, prostitution rings, and a connected drug ring operating on the Hill. CBS Evening News first ran the story on June 30, 1982, and the hints of drug abuse were quickly linked to arrests that had occurred several months earlier. On April 19th, Douglas Marshall, Robert Finkel, and Troy Todd were apprehended by undercover Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police for possession of cocaine. Of the three, Marshall and Todd were charged with distributing and conspiring to distribute cocaine, while Finkel and another accomplice, a young woman named Devin Dupree, were named as unindicted co-conspirators. This peculiar group of individuals operated a cocaine ring that employed the services of congressional pages, tour guides, and other Hill employees who enjoyed wide-ranging access to members of Congress. 
Douglas Marshall himself had been a page, while Robert Finkel had worked as an elevator operator in the Capitol. A newspaper described Devin Dupree as a Georgetown cocktail waitress, while another stated that she reportedly socialized with a California congressman who found himself under investigation by drug agents. Dupree was subsequently entered into the Justice Department Federal Witness Program, where she was moved to an undisclosed location for her protection. On July 7th, Jack Anderson reported that more than 15 members of Congress were customers of a cocaine ring that operated on Capitol Hill. He also appeared on ABC News Nightline with Sam Donaldson, publicly linking the cocaine ring with the emerging allegations of prostitution and sexual abuse. During the interview, Anderson stated, There were some pages involved, but the drug scam later changed into a sex scam. I know very little about the sex angle, except that some of the same people were involved. When asked whether the pages were acting as couriers for the dealing of drugs, Anderson responded, That's correct. So were congressional aides. By the time Anderson was making these accusations, an FBI investigation, as well as a House Ethics Committee inquiry, had formed to assess the possibilities of a sex and drug ring operating on Capitol Hill. Oddly enough, Watergate familiar Joseph Califano Jr., was put in charge of the inquiry. Califano's team employed a score of lawyers and investigators, including two private investigators, Richard Powers, a former New York City police officer, and John Jack Moriarty, a former D.C. police officer. Robert Keith Gray's name arose in the inquiry due to an anonymous tip, which had been handled by Richard Powers, who drafted a memo on the tip for Joseph Califano. Unsurprisingly, this memo quickly disappeared from the inquiry. The lead to Gray arose on July 21st, when Ethics Committee Counsel Donald Purdy and investigator Jack Moriarty interviewed another figure intimately involved in Watergate, police officer Carl Schaffler. Schaffler turned over extensive amounts of information he had compiled on Gray, including his links to Edwin Wilson and the CIA, rumors of his involvement in the use and distribution of narcotics, and wild tales of orgies taking place at Gray's home in Rehoboth Beach. The most alarming allegation made by Schaffler was that a consultant for Diamond Shamrock, a major Texas-based oil and gas concern, 
as well as a local photographer personally known to Gray, had both been involved in a male prostitution service on Capitol Hill. At the time, Diamond Shamrock was a client of Gray & Co., an independent PR firm set up by Robert Keith Gray in the early 1980s. Several weeks after he provided this information to Purdy and Moriarty, Carl Schaffler was contacted by Michael Hilgram, a security specialist with long-standing intelligence ties. Michael Pilgrim wanted to know if Schaffler had been hired by H&K to keep tabs on their former executive. The former executive here being Robert Keith Gray, who had left the firm to start Gray & Co. Pilgrim had been asked to assess Carl Schaffler by Neil Livingstone, another strange character from the murky netherworld where intelligence and Beltway subterfuge intersected. Neil Livingstone, who will be discussed at greater length in the next episode, was at the time working for Robert Keith Gray at Gray & Co. Livingstone also maintained extensive ties to the circles around Ted Shackley, Thomas Kleins, and Edwin Wilson, which dated back to the mid-1970s. The arrival of Livingstone on the scene raises even more puzzling questions. As Susan Trento asks, how did Livingstone find out that Schaffler had received allegations about Gray? The day after his encounter with Pilgrim, Carl Schaffler was contacted by Thomas Fertuin, who was then acting as Gray's attorney. Thomas Fertuin's choice as lawyer is interesting. According to Whitney Webb, in 1981, he had taken over from Roy Cohn as the chief attorney for Tony Salerno, the boss of the Genovese crime family. These ties to Roy Cohn may have run deep, as Robert Keith Gray was reportedly a friend of Cohn, though the exact nature of their relationship remains vague. Expanding on these connections, a year after the Page Boy scandal first broke, Tony Salerno arranged for the appointment of Jackie Presser as president of the Teamsters Union. Jackie Presser was a client and close associate of Robert Keith Gray. It is speculated that the two may have even owned a mysterious company together named Member Services Corporation. Thomas Fortuyn even offered Carl Schaffler the opportunity to interview Gray with the expressed clarification that Gray would deny the allegations that Schaffler had made to Purdy and Moriarty. He then added that it was Jack Moriarty who had turned over the information to Gray's associates. 
in what can only be described as an incredible conflict of interest, both Moriarty and Richard Powers, while working on the Ethics Committee probe, were also moonlighting on behalf of Gray & Co. Richard Powers turns out to be a longtime associate of Thomas Fertuin, who had previously employed Powers as his own private investigator. In a subsequent meeting, Richard Powers even offered Schaffler a very lucrative position working for Robert Keith Gray. Schaffler saw this as an attempted bribe and reported it to the U.S. Attorney. Very soon, a sweeping Department of Justice investigation was underway. On September 28, 1982, the New York Times ran an article stamped with the title, Califano Suspends Two Investigators in Congress Sex and Drugs Inquiry. According to the article, Califano did not return repeated calls to his office, and Justice Department officials declined to disclose the nature of the charges against Mr. Moriarty and Mr. Powers. After the Moriarty and Powers debacle, the entire episode came to a close in a hushed fashion, leaving more questions than satisfactory answers. In the final Ethics Committee report, Califano cited evidence that the U.S. Capitol Police had systematically destroyed documentary records related to drug trafficking on the Hill, including vital documents put together during July 1982, when the accusations first began to gain momentum. While the report suggested that disciplinary action in connection with the destruction might be warranted, there was insufficient evidence to conclude that the records contained information important to the committee's investigation of illicit drug use or distribution of drugs. The allegations of sexual abuse towards congressional pages and homosexual prostitution were also soon swept under the rug. Leroy Williams Jr., the page who first came forward, suddenly recanted his statements. He told investigators working on behalf of the Ethics Committee that he concocted the tale of sexual misconduct and drug use in order to draw public attention to the pressures of the page system. The swift recanting of the allegations and the subsequent lack of attention paid to the matter raises questions about whether there was a coordinated effort to suppress or discredit the scandal. The dismissal of the allegations and the lack of thorough investigation into the matter ultimately leaves the true extent of the alleged misconduct open to speculation and debate. Intriguingly, the congressman and later senator with whom 
Leroy Williams had claimed to have had sex with Larry Craig of Idaho was a sitting member of the House Ethics Committee and, in 2007, he was arrested after propositioning an undercover police officer for sex in the men's restroom of the Minneapolis St. Paul International Airport. While this does not corroborate the scandal, it does add another layer of complexity when considered in context with the Page Boy scandal. And that takes us to the end of Chapter 5. As always, I appreciate your attention. Look at this with a critical eye. Be sure to go check out Winnie Webb's work. Support her by buying her books. And if you'd like to support the podcast, all the links are in the description below. Love you all. Look forward to seeing you for Chapter 6. Peace.